Well, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Alyssa. I'm one of the pastors here at Central City. It's so good to be preaching with you today. It's been a while since I have, uh, since I've preached, so uh, bear with me. <laughs> Just kidding. Well, over the last couple of weeks, we have been in this series called Dealing with Doubt. And if you missed the first two sermons, I really encourage you to go and listen to them. They're on our podcast. You can find it at centralcity.co backslash podcast hopefully. But you should really listen to the podcast. The first sermon discussed how we as a community deal with doubt, uh, being open and transparent about our own doubts and being merciful to those who doubt. Last week's sermon looked at a well-known story of Jesus walking on water and, and Peter attempting to as well. And Joe gave us three benefits of doubt, but I'm not going to give those to you. You have to, again, go listen to the podcast. Well, today I want to look at a person in scripture who is well known as being the father of faith. Uh, this person is Abraham. Now, many of you have probably heard of Abraham. You probably sang that uh, Bible school song. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Father Abraham. Any sons? I'm not gonna. I'm not a good singer. I don't want to. Okay. So he's the father, so to speak, of uh, the three major religions. Uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So each of those religions revere him as this giant of faith um, who we can look to as an example of faith. Well, before he was known as Abraham, he was known as Abram. So Abram means exalted father. But as we'll see in a couple minutes, he has no children. At any point while he is named Abram, has he had children. So there are many places in the New Testament to talk about the faith of Abraham. Uh, one of those places is Hebrews 11. It's this chapter on faith, and it lists a bunch of people who lived by faith, lived their entire lives by faith. And so he is in this list. And if you're going through the list, you'll see that he has the largest section. He's just known as this giant of faith. And the author of Hebrews writes about Abraham, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his, as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And so this is where we begin with Abraham. I just want to mention, if you're following along in the Bible app on our events page, um, there's just one scripture in there. It's Hebrews 11. What verses did I say? like 13 to 25 or something like that. So there's a section in there and that's kind of like a consensus, like a summary of Abraham. And so if you're following along in there, I'm not going to go through that passage, but I would really encourage you to read that after this. And so we can look at the, compare the two sections. So, but we're going to start where, where that leaves off with Abraham going to this land that he did not know where he was going. So his story in the Old Testament can be found in Genesis 12, through 25. Luckily for you, we're only going to read Genesis 12 through 22. So we're going to do just this broad sweep of Abram's story. We're just going to look at a bunch of these major sections, but I really encourage you to take time to look at Abraham's story as a whole, if you can, over the next couple of weeks. It's just such a significant stories that are important to the story of God that foretell some of the things that Israel and, and us as Christians are going to go through with God. And it also informs us as how we can live as people of faith, even in the midst of doubt and hard times. So starting with chapter 12, you can follow along in your Bible or on your Bible app. Like the key verses that we're going to look at will be on the screen behind me. But if you want to flip through as we go through the chapters, that'd be good too. So Genesis 12 verses 1 through 4 says, The Lord had said to Abraham, Abram, 
Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. So God calls Abram to go to this distant land, somewhere he had no idea where he was going. Right here, God chooses Abram to be a significant part of God's plan for the redemption of all creation. Can you imagine? Right here, God is, God is basically saying, you are going to be my plan. You are the plan that I have for redemption. God, so God promises to make Abram into a great nation and promises to bless Abram and all those around him. So Abram, it says the next day he gets up and he leaves. He leaves his family. He takes his wife, Sarai, and his nephew, Lot, with him, and he goes where God tells him. The next day, there's no conversation. He just gets up and goes. He's like, all right. Might as well. So here begins Abram's journey with God. Before this, Abram and God really hadn't talked. There's no, there's no story in scripture about Abram meeting God. He might have known about God, but this is really where his journey with God, his relationship with God starts here in chapter 12. But right after God tells Abram to go to this particular place, Abram shows up and the land is barren. They're in the midst of a famine. So God tells Abram to go to this place that can't even sustain their life. This is where I would start doubting. Uh, do you really have my good intentions, and, like good intentions for me? Are you really on my side? What is going on? Why are you sending me to a place where we can't even live? But we don't see this in scripture, but they just continue on. They go to Egypt. So Abram, Sarai, and Lot just head on over to Egypt, almost 350 miles away, mind you, walking. And this next story is crazy. You'll just have to read it for yourself. I'm not going to go through it. Abram is nervous about being killed in this distant land. You know, they're foreigners in Egypt. So they tell everyone that Sarai is his sister, which technically isn't lying since she's his half-sister, but they don't tell the full truth. So Abram becomes rich because the officials like Sarai, then God punishes the Pharaoh. So the Pharaoh tells Abram and Sarai to leave. Crazy story. You have to read it for yourself. Genesis 12, 10 through 20. It's like the most insane thing. If you don't think that scripture is, you know, a little scandalous sometimes, you haven't read the Old Testament. But this happens a second time. This isn't the only time that this happens. A couple chapters later, Abram and Sarah do this again to another guy. We never learn our lesson the first time, right? So moving on, Abram and Sarah and Lot in chapter 13 they take all the livestock and all the possessions that they've gained while they were in Egypt, and they move back toward the land that God had given them the first time. So they move back towards Canaan, and in chapter 13, Lot and Abram decide to part ways, since they have so many possessions and livestock and their servants are kind of arguing, they decide to part ways, because having too much stuff, that's a problem. So God is okay with this. So God again restates his promise to Abram. He says that he's going to give him all this land that he can see and that his offspring, that they will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Genesis 13 through 18 is where God is saying this. The promise isn't fulfilled yet, but Abram trusts God and builds an altar to the Lord, not only to worship God in that place, but also as a reminder to the promise that God has made. So he knows that he hears the promise and he says, I'm going to build this altar right here so that I can remember God and maybe so that God can remember too 
this promise that you've made to me. Chapter 14, a bunch of kings start a war right where Lot is living, so Abram goes to rescue his nephew and defeats the kings, blah, blah, blah. Chapter 15, now this is the good stuff. Chapter 15 is really, this is good. This is where we actually hear Abram's voice at talking to God. So, but this is also where the doubts start to come in. Now we're talking about dealing with doubt here, and, and this, this is where we see how Abram deals with doubt. God comes to talk to Abram after this battle that he had just gone through, and Abram finally looks at God and says, what is going on? How in the world is an old married couple, Abram at this point is probably around 75, no, he's probably around 80, 85 at this point. Sarai is 10 years younger than him. How is this old married couple going to have offspring that are as numerous as the dust on the earth? So Abram confronts God about his doubts. God has come through in some other areas and has protected him, provided, or at least promised to. So Abram is trying to figure out how God is going to come through on this one as well. He says, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus? You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Abraham's questioning God. Like, what is going on? I can't have children. And you've promised me that I'm going to have all these descendants, that my name will go on, that we'll have this land, but I have no children. What, how are you going to reconcile this? The whole foundation of the promise is a child. Now we're all starting to doubt, right? Like, how is God going to come through on this? And we ask ourselves, how can anyone believe the promises of God? Put yourself in, those, in that situation. If, if God promise you, promises you something and it's 15 years later, nothing in Abram's present situation provides a reason to believe. God now has to provide proof, right? God needs to link this promise that he's made over and over to real life, to what's going on in Abram's life. So Abram's faith puts the burden back on God to provide. So God does a beautiful thing. You can see the depth of their relationship in this scene. I love this Abram's desperate cry of how and God's compassionate response. Verse 5. God took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can. So shall your offspring be. It's almost like God is saying, I understand your doubts. I get it. Let me take you by the hand and let me show you what I promise. Verse 6 says that Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now we don't know for sure what gave the clue that Abram believed, but this was their relationship. They could trust one another. They could have this conversation. They were able to talk about it. Abram was able to be honest with God about his doubts. And this is the moment that God made his covenant with Abram. This is the moment that it moved from being a verbal promise to a legally binding agreement. Now God can't get off the hook. Chapter 16, so far, we've been tracking along with God and Abram's relationship. Abram's wife, Sarai, hasn't chimed in much at all, but seems to just be going with the flow. If you read through some of the other chapters, she seems to just be like along for the ride. But that's a whole other sermon about women and patriarchy in the Old Testament, and that never happens today, though. Regardless, we finally hear Sarai in chapter 16. She seems to be a little impatient about this whole promise of a child thing, too. You know, like, this is her life as well. I mean, she's 75, 80 years old, and God's telling her she's going to give birth. 
I didn't want that at 27. So, uh, so knowing that God works through humans as well, Sarai devise, decides that she's going to help come up with, God, with a plan to help God out, um, which is allowing Abram to sleep with her slave Hagar so that maybe Hagar will have a son and then the promise will be fulfilled. Again, a whole other sermon about how people with power treat people without power who also don't have a voice in the ancient world. Anyways, you can all probably guess how this situation panned out. Sarai gets jealous because Hagar has a son, so Hagar runs away, but the grace of God is still present. God doesn't get angry with Abraham or Sarai, and God is kind and loving toward Hagar and her son and promises to provide for them as well. So at this point in Abram's journey, he's 99 years old, looking at chapter 17. We're moving right along here. So 99 years old. He's been traveling with God at this point for 24 years. 24 years ago, God promised him that he would be a great nation. So when God made this covenant with Abraham in chapter 15, Abraham brought some supplies and God did all this work that made this a legally binding contract for God. Well, now in chapter 17, right after this whole fiasco with Hagar, God decides that he has to put some of this covenant with Abraham too, with Abram too. So the son he had with Hagar doesn't seem to fulfill this promise that God made. So God expounds on this covenant they made a few years ago. And now, almost as if to challenge Abraham to see if he's in this as much as God is, puts some of this covenant on Abraham. So God gives Abram a new name. Abram, remember, it means exalted father. Abram, Abram doesn't have any children, but it means exalted father, almost as if it's a sign of what will be to come. But now his name is Abraham which means father of many. God gives him a new identity. And from now on, Abraham and all his descendants as a part of this covenant will, also, will be circumcised. And his wife gets a name change too. She will no longer be called Sarah, Sarai, but Sarah, and she will have a child. So 24 years later, God still hasn't fulfilled the promise to make Abram into a great nation. If we look at this from God's perspective, God is taking a huge risk on Abram. If he turns out to not be fully invested in God's plan, that could have significant repercussions for God's redemption of creation. If this guy isn't fully invested, the whole plan could go awry. But Abraham, after hearing again all the promises that come with this covenant with God, and after knowing God for 24 years, is still doubtful, still doubting, which is understandable. But this time he laughs. He basically is laughing at God like, ha. I believe you. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. Is this really going to happen? And this is really the epitome of his doubts. Uh, chapter 17, verse 17 says, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? Abraham, as if he doesn't believe God about Sarah having a child, he says, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. God replies to him in that and says that, Abra uh, that Ishmael will be blessed but that Sarah will still have a child. This is going to happen. So never in any of the times that Abraham questions God, does God get angry. God always responds with grace and he always responds. And because of this relationship that Abraham and God have, Abraham fulfills his part of the covenant, the name changes and the circumcision and on. He keeps moving on with this relationship, but we have to wonder if the doubts were still there. You know, like I'm going to go through with this God, but I'm still not sure if this is real. Well, I am no stranger to doubt. 
I know many of you who took our survey are no stranger to doubt. I remember one season of especially intense doubts and questions. I um, was in college and I was working at this church. I had an internship through college and I quit my internship at this church because I didn't think that I could doubt so much about God and scripture and all in the church and still teach others about this. I was, a youth, I was a youth ministry intern. So I quit because I said, I'm having way too many doubts. I have to figure this out first, figure out what God is doing or if there's a God. And so I quit. That was really my first crisis of faith. It was the first time that everything I knew about God and the church was being called into question. And I had to figure out if and what I still believed. And since then, in the midst of that, I knew that it was a community of faith that was holding me on. There's a song that I always go back to, and it, it's, Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it, for I'm prone to wander. And I knew that that, just song, that song just kept me going in that time because I knew that, I, that these doubts were causing me to wander, but I knew that it was that community of faith who wrote that song and who sang that song would keep me with God. But God has always been present even after those doubts, but I still doubt. I doubt that we're gonna make it to the end of the month with all of our bills paid and our needs met. I doubt that prayer works, that God even cares to hear my prayers sometimes. I sometimes doubt that God cares because of so much unnecessary suffering in the world. Sometimes I doubt scripture. Sometimes I doubt that I'm on the right path with relationships or career. Sometimes I doubt that God is even real because God doesn't act in the same ways that I see God acting in scripture, or so I think. I go on. But what I realize and what I find in looking at the story with Abraham is that every meaningful relationship requires trust. Parent-child relationship, spouse and spouse relationship, friend relationship, even coworkers require a level of trust. And trust is built over time. We eventually build our trust so much that we have faith that the other person is in this relationship as much as I am. And the same is true with our relationship with God. Our faith and our trust in God is built in relationship over time. And eventually, as we begin to trust God with more, God begins to trust us with more. And we know that we're in this relationship as much as God is. When we trust in the midst of doubts, the relationship can go even deeper. This is what I love about chapter 18. So just after Abraham is laughing because he, he's not sure if God is actually going to pull this off, something happens just at the right time, the right thing at the right time. Abraham is at home with three visitors in chapter 18. Oh, three visitors show up and they confirm exactly what God said. And they give him a time frame. They say, Sarah's going to have a child this time next year. So finally, after 25 years, 24, 25 years, God finally tells Abraham when. Chapter 18, 10 says, I will surely return to you about this next this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now at this, right when this guy says this, this visitor, Sarah laughs. So first Abraham's laughing because he's like, this is impossible. And now Sarah, she's listening in, and she laughs. So she's even doubting in the midst of this. After this happens, God then, because of their relationship, oh, this is such a beautiful story. I hope that you guys take time to read this. God decides that he is going to share his, some of his plan with Abraham. He says that he's going to destroy a couple of these cities and he kind of, it's almost as if he's asking for Abraham's uh, opinion on this. And Abraham, probably concerned for his nephew who lives in one of these cities, he pleaded with God because they had that kind of relationship. And he said, and he convinced God not to destroy the cities if there were at least 10 righteous people in these cities. 
So God agreed. Isn't that crazy? God was just going to destroy these cities, but he asks Abraham what he thinks. And Abraham says, no, no, just like, just search it out. See if there's 10 righteous people. And so God's like, okay, isn't that crazy to have that kind of relationship with God? So beautiful. Um, as we learn in chapter 19, there weren't even 10 righteous people in these, in these, in these cities. But chapter 19, verse 29, it says, So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. God knew that he was, he was pleading with God because he, he was concerned for his nephew who lived there. And so God, because he loved and cared for Abraham, saved his nephew and brought him out of that. Such a beautiful relationship. God cares so deeply for Abraham and for each of us, even in his doubts, his imperfections when he tries to take things into his own hand when he doesn't know what he's doing in his humanity. Now we're going to skip over chapter 20 because it's the scene about Sarah being Abraham's sister again. We don't need to go through that again. But 21, guys, we made it. This is it. Chapter 21, Sarah becomes pregnant. Yay! At 90 years old. Oh, but she has a son and they name him Isaac. Get this, because Isaac means he laughs. So they laugh at... God and you know in their laughter God even provided even in the midst of that doubt Sarah says it like this chapter 21 verse 7 who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children and yet I have borne him a son in his old age the promise has been fulfilled their doubts have been answered 25 years later in chapter 22 because of the relationship between God and Abraham don't worry this is the last chapter we're going through because of the relationship between God and Abraham, God is ready to embark on the most faith-questioning journey of his life. And this is exactly why Abraham is called the father of faith. After years and years of waiting for this son, for expecting this promise, God tests Abraham again. Like that wasn't enough. Chapter 22 verses 1 through 3 say, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. What? Abraham doesn't question anything about this. He gets up the next morning, he prepares the wood and the donkeys, and he sets out on his way. The fact that he's probably 115 and has to walk very far and climb a mountain, or the fact that God said, sacrifice your son, there's no conversation here. Now, Abraham and God have been through a lot. We just skimmed through much of their story, and we can see that God always cared for Abraham that God always provided. He always responded with compassion and he was never angry. But this, can you imagine? Even Isaac is doubtful. I love this. Isaac says, the fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? It's like, uh, <laughs> what's going on here? Now, Abraham still trusts and he answers his son. He says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. It's like those moments in life when we're like, I don't know how this is going to work out, but it has to, right? A modern theologian by the name of Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book dissecting the faith of Abraham. It's called Fear and Trembling. It's one of my favorite books that I read in college that I, you know, kind of read in college. Um, Kierkegaard examines, I read most of it. We talked about it in class. That was enough. But it is one of my favorite 
stories in one of my favorite examples of faith and the way that we look at faith, Kierkegaard examines the difference between a tragic hero who does the ethical thing, something that we all can say, yeah, that was the right thing, that was good, we can talk about it. We all understand that because it's common sense almost. So we have this tragic hero, and then we have this knight of faith who he resigns to give up everything, and he just makes a leap of faith, is what Kierkegaard calls it, trusting that God will give him, give back to him more than he gave up. So we have this tragic hero where all of us can talk about and understand what he's going through, and then we have this this knight of faith who we have no idea what's going on. Like, he's ready to give up everything, and we're all looking at him like he's crazy. The difference is the leap of faith. Both of them resign to give up everything, but the tragic hero decides that he can't sacrifice his son because that's not the ethical thing to do. So he doesn't even go as far as Abraham would. Kierkegaard calls faith in this book, he calls it absurd. And we can resonate with that, right? Like we all know someone who maybe they moved, they sold everything they had and they moved to a different country to serve the poor or they share their faith with this random person in line at McDonald's and you're like, what are they doing? That's crazy. I don't want to do that. But Kierkegaard concludes that faith cannot be reasoned or explained. The faith that Abraham has in Genesis 22 is faith that has to be experienced. The ethical, this tragic hero, it's on this kind of uh, corporate level where all of us can understand. It's this universal experience. But faith is an individual experience that has to be experienced personally. And it's faith is experienced in the context of a relationship. Abraham, because of all that he's known about God, knows that God will provide this time too. And this would look absurd from the outside, can you imagine being one of, the, one of the servants that's there? Like, hmm, probably asking the same question that Isaac did. All right, well, he's now walking up the mountain and doesn't have an animal. So we'll see how this is going to work. Faith is beyond work. Learned with experience, not reason. Sometimes I think we think that it's, that it's easy. Faith is kind of this easy thing. Like it just happens. I think that's how we approach it. We're like, well, I, I should just have faith. That's what happens. And, but knowledge, knowledge, we think, well, I need to learn and study, and I need, you know, I have to take time with this knowledge thing. But Kierkegaard in, in Fear and Trembling reverses these. That, that knowledge is easy. Any of us can gain knowledge. Any of us can read and learn and just absorb this knowledge. But faith, faith is hard. Faith is what takes work, and faith takes time. Faith is risky. But luckily for us, faith places the burden back on God. Every time Abraham doubted, he looked to God and expected an answer. If God didn't provide an answer, Abraham wouldn't be able to help with God's mission of redemption. And I think we, we experience that too, right? When we have questions and doubts, we really, we place it back on God. God, where are you? Are you going to answer? Scripture says that when we have faith, even as small as a mustard seed, God can take the rest. Over the past several weeks, many of you filled out the survey on doubt. Um, some of the answers, or some of the questions that we asked were, have you ever had doubts about your Christian faith? How do you think Christians view those who have doubts? Do you feel comfortable expressing your doubts in church? Now, I just want to take a couple of minutes to address these particular survey questions. 87.9 um, of you said, yes, you've had experience with, you've had doubts about your Christian faith. 3% of you said, not lately. And the other 9.1% of you said, no. 
There's a nice little graph about it. But I really think with the no, it should have been not yet, right? I mean, Jesus had doubts. On the cross, he said, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? The disciples who were standing right in front of Jesus right after the resurrection, it says they worshiped him and some doubted. In doubts, questions about our faith, they give us the opportunity to move deeper into the relationship we have with God. So if any of you in this room um, haven't had a significant period of doubting, I hope that not for the sole purpose of having the doubts or the pain or the struggle, but I hope that at some point in your journey that you can experience some doubts that lead to a greater outcome of faith. I think doubts have an oppor- push us into an opportunity to grow in our relationship with God that we just can't take for granted. I know the struggles that I went through in college and reading through some stuff like Kierkegaard, I know that pushed me so much deeper in my faith than anything before that. Now, you all share different responses with how you think Christians view those who doubt. Some negative, you know, sometimes we, we think that people look at people who have doubts and think that they're sinning or that they're not really Christians. But some shared positively that, that people were kind and helped people along who have doubts. A couple of weeks ago, Paul shared with us the verse from Jude. Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. And this is the example that we have from God with Abraham. He was so merciful and compassionate and loving because he knew that once Abraham got through the doubts, that their relationship would be that much stronger. Not that we could just brush the doubts aside, but get through the doubts that their, their relationship between Abraham and God would be so much stronger. So be merciful to those who doubt, including yourself. The last question, or one of the last questions was, do you feel comfortable expressing your doubts with church? Many of the results were yes. And hopefully that's because many of the people who filled out the survey call this their church home um, and that this is a safe place. And I want you to know that this is a safe place to express your doubts, to share your doubts, to, to walk with people. Because so many times we feel like we have to keep it to ourselves. And maybe that's past experience where we were shunned or, or not, look, you know, wasn't accepted. But, but this is a place where if you want to talk about your doubts, that this is a safe place. We get the doubts and we've been there too. So just as God was compassionate to Abraham when he doubted, we will be compassionate too. And I say that as much for those going through doubts as for those who aren't and someone talks to you. This is, a, this is a safe place. If someone talks to you about their doubts, this is a safe place. Well, one of the questions we asked on the survey was, is there a certain doubt or question that is causing difficulty in your faith? Now, there were several answers to that. And so each of those could be its own sermon and we don't have time for that. There is everything from doubting the inerrancy of scripture to suffering to unanswered prayers, um, the nature of Jesus' atonement and salvation. Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my life? Why do bad things happen? Where is God now? Why isn't God acting like he did in history? And I want to say yes to all of those doubts. I have or am currently wrestling with many of those doubts as well. But as I was praying about and preparing for this sermon, I had the opportunity to sit in a couple different small groups and even just talking to people like I normally do throughout the week. And I heard story after story after story of how God is acting in people's lives, that people are experiencing God right now, right here. And I was reminded through some of those stories and also my own reflection of how God has, has acted in my life. That when I look back over the last several years that I know God is here and that even though I don't see him right here in this particular scenario, that God is still acting and still cares. So I, I want to I say that that's not 
a flyby answer. That's not just, I know it because I've seen it, you know. I don't want to brush aside any doubts that people are having, but I wish I could give more details and more stories and, and share with you my experiences, but I don't have time right now to do that. So if you ever want to talk about uh, my experience with faith and overcoming doubt, I would love to do that. But just know that on the other side of each of these doubts that we have, our faith is able to be increased more and more. I begin to trust God with more of my life and God begins to trust me with more of God's mission in this world. I believe that the nature of faith necessitates doubt because faith is all about uncertainty, about mystery, about knowing that there's something coming ahead. If we were certain, we wouldn't need faith. Jesus says to Thomas right after the resurrection, he says, you are blessed because you see and believe, but greater will be those who do not see and yet still believe. Sometimes we don't want to deal with our doubts because we don't feel like we can give ourselves over fully to this relationship that's possible with God. A relationship of conversations and questions and adventure and journeys and risks. Sometimes we don't feel like we can. And sometimes I feel like Sarah, kind of this peripheral character where God and, and Abraham are acting and doing things. She's just going with the flow and allowing others to, to figure out the plan. And although I'm still part of this promise that God has, I'm not the one who has the relationship with God. This is real life. This was my thought as I was writing this sermon. Sometimes I feel like that. I feel like God is acting out here and I'm, I see that, but I'm not a part of this relationship with God. Scripture tells us that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. So I know that this relationship with God is possible. I love this uh, song. Um, it's a song by All Sons and Daughters. In the first verse, it says, Lord, I find you in the seeking. I find you in the doubt. And to know you is to love you and to know so little out, to know so little else. I need you, oh how I need you. We find God in the doubt because God is there. We find God, and when we find him, we begin to know him, and we continue, as we continue to know him, we begin to love him. And as we begin to love him, all else fades away. That we're still gonna have those doubts. We're still gonna have those moments like Abraham where we're laughing because we think something is impossible. But in the midst of that relationship, we know that God still cares for us. Abraham didn't attempt to sacrifice his son because he was a murderer or because he didn't love his son. He obeyed God because he knew that God would provide more than he could ever imagine. Through this son and through the faith of Abraham, God gave him descendants as numerous as the stars. Abraham is the father of three major religions today. We can't even count the number of Christians, Jews, and Muslims today. And he is the father of those religions. Hebrews 11 Verse 13 says, All these people, including Abraham, they were living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Now this story is of Abraham is often paralleled with the death and resurrection of Jesus. A father gives his son just to be in relationship. And just when we think all is lost, the father provides a way through death to eternal life. And God is offering each of us this relationship. Maybe you've had doubts or you haven't had doubts yet and you're, you've never struggled with your faith, but you want to go deeper with God. Is there a small group or a person that you can talk to that could just walk with you and help you recognize God's activity in your life? Maybe you've been struggling with doubt for so long in your life that you're at that place where you're wondering if it's still even worth it to go on. I encourage you to 
stay in the conversation. Even though nothing in your present situation provides a reason to believe, I encourage you to stay in the conversation. It took Abraham 25 years to see this promise, and he only saw the beginning of it. God is still with you. Is there a person that you could walk with through your doubts? Maybe someone who has been where you are now that you can talk to, that you can share your doubts with. Maybe you're on the other side of some of these doubts. Maybe you've had doubts and your faith has grown and your confidence in God has increased. Maybe there's someone around you who is in the midst of doubting who you could walk with, who you could pray with or meet with or encourage. I want to spend the next couple of minutes just reflecting, where are you with your doubts? Have you not had any yet? Are you in the midst of them and struggling with them currently? Are you on the other side of some of them? What's your next step today? As we, as a community, figure this whole life and doubt and trust and faith thing out together, how can we encourage one another? How can we deal with doubts as a community? Because even though this, this sermon series is only four weeks long, we're going to end it after next week, we're still going to have doubts. There's still going to be moments as a community where we're like, what is going on? Where is God? And so as we continue to deal with doubts, I just want to encourage you to think about where you are. Have you experienced God recently in your life? Have you experienced God's comfort or hope or support? Let's take a couple minutes and I'll come back up and pray. God, I don't know where a lot of people are in this room, but I know that you are with us. That this man who came... 2,000 years ago, Jesus, that he came to be in relationship with us. He came to show us how to be in relationship with you. So God, today we just come before you and we are seeking you. We come before you to worship you here, but also, God, we come before you to remind both of us of the promises that you've made in scripture, that you will be with us, that you will never forsake us, that you love us, that you care for us, that you have our best in mind. So God, we hold you to these promises. And we ask that you would show up, that in those moments where we have no idea what's going on, we don't know what we're doing, we ask for your guidance. We ask for those signs that you gave Abraham. And we trust God that you will respond and that you will be gracious towards us. God, we love you. We love you even when we don't know some of these questions, some of these answers. God, we choose to follow you, and we just pray that you would, you would increase our faith, even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.